in your Bible today, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 in your Bible. When you find it, stand to your feet, if you will, and we'll read God's Word together here in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and I'm going to read three verses today, verse 7, 8, and 9. 1 Corinthians 16 and 7. For I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Thank you, and you may be seated. Let me set the background for you here. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, a church that he had founded and a church that he dearly loved. In fact, the two letters to the Corinthians would be combined, the longest that Paul instructed any church of the many that he founded. So he had a very special place in his heart for these people to write these two letters and thousands of words to them. Of course, when I say that he wrote that, I want you to understand that that means he wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This was not, not just a, a personal letter that he wrote. This is a letter inspired of the Holy Spirit himself. And in this passage, Paul is winding down this letter, this epistle. He's revealing his future plans, his, actually his itinerary, his travel plans, if you will. And what he is saying to them there in verse 7 and 8 is that, I won't see you yet. I wish I could come by there. I'm traveling, but I won't see you yet, but I'll be coming through Macedonia near you. I'll be coming there later, and when I do, well, I'm going to stop and spend some time with you in verse number 7. And then he says in verse 8, I'm going to be staying here at Ephesus until Pentecost. And what does he mean by that? Well, Ephesus is a church that he founded also. He wrote the book of Ephesians to them. And he said, I'm going to tarry here. I'm going to be staying here a little while. And then in verse 9, we come to the heart of what I'd like to speak to you about today. Because in verse 9, he gives a view of the Lord's work at Ephesus. He describes in a few words the Lord's work, what God is doing in the church in that city in Ephesus. Now, I want you to notice what he says about that work, and he describes it really with just two words. First of all, he describes it as a place of opportunity. Notice the phrase there in verse 9, a great door and effectual is open unto me. The word effectual comes from a Greek word that's really the word for energy, activity. And so he's saying there's an open and active door right now, and it's opened to me. Now, we use, we use that term, open doors. An open door is a way of describing opportunity, isn't it? And Paul says here, a great opportunity, a great door is opened unto me, 
And it's an effectual one. God is working. It's a very active thing, so much so that I can't leave right now. I need to stay and do the work that God has called me to do. And then he mentions many adversaries. So the two words are opportunities and adversaries. Opportunities and adversaries is the way he describes the Lord's work at Ephesus. In fact, that's the title of my message to you, a proper view of the Lord's work. Paul's view of the Lord's work was what? There are open doors. There are opportunities for us all, but there are also obstacles. There are oppositions. There are adversaries that stand in the way. It's never going to be easy. And what Paul said about the Lord's work there at Ephesus could be said about the Lord's work here at the Florence Baptist Temple, couldn't it? There are multiple opportunities. There are open doors where God is working, but there's also adversaries. There's opposition. If we're going to do the Lord's work, we're always going to be discovering opposition to it. Such has been the case down through the years. Now, what can we learn from this passage of Scripture that is applicable to where we are right now? And I hope, are you listening to me already? I hope you are. I don't want you to miss this today because I'm kind of trying to uh, create a, a, to set the sail for the future for us because we're trying to come out of this COVID thing and boy, we want to go somewhere and do something for the Lord now. So please hear me well today, I hope. Number one, if you're taking notes with me, we must be alert to opportunity. That's what Paul was saying. We must be alert to opportunity. And keep your hand there in 1 Corinthians 16, but go back in your Bible to the book of John, chapter number 4, if you will. The Gospel of John, chapter 4, and we have our Lord's own description of opportunity. John, chapter 4, and verse 34. Jesus said unto them, my meat or my nourishment, that which nourishes that, he could have been saying, my purpose, my mission is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And Jesus is probably the only person in all of history who could honestly say, I've finished the work. Do you remember on the cross what he said? It is finished. And not many people could go to the end of their life and say, well, I've done everything that God wanted me to do. But the Lord Jesus could say that. Most of us die with a lot of unfinished business, but not our Lord. It is finished, he said, referring to his life's mission. Now, right, he sa- right here he says, that was my goal. The thing that nourishes me, the thing that strengthens me, the things that is my purpose and keeps me going, is to do the will of God, of him that sent me and to finish his work. And then he says, don't say there are yet four months and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Note two words with me, the word fields. In another place, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said, the field is the world. 
So he's really saying to his disciples, I want you to look out upon the world. I want you to look up, out upon the culture, the society in which we live right now. I want you to look out upon them, and I want you to see they are white is the next word I want you to mark in your Bible. The, the fields are white, referring to the fact that they're ripe, that they're ready to be harvested absolutely right now. He's saying to them, we can't procrastinate. Don't say we've got four months. Let's not put it off. Let's right now understand the urgency of going ahead and doing something about this opportunity, this open door, this effectual open door that God has put before us. And so Jesus introduces them here to a principle that I want to introduce you to if you don't already know it. Many of you would. And the principle is this, and write it somewhere right there in the margin of your Bible, and don't ever forget it. The principle is this, God is always working. God is always working. Don't say, well, when the Lord opens the doors and things get in the right circumstance, well, we're going to do something for the Lord. And here's the way individual Christians would interpret that. You know, when the circumstances get right, I'm, I'm going to teach that Sunday school class, or I'm going to begin to learn how to be a soul winner, or I'm going to do some things for the Lord. But right now, you know, well, we've got a little bit of COVID hanging around, and, and I've got my, my children have this agenda, and, and, and I have this responsibility. And before long, we've put it off, and we've put it off. We've kicked the can down the road, as we say. We've procrastinated on, and we just never get around to doing the thing that God wants us to do, and we let the opportunities pass, uh, pass by us. You see, the fields are white, and a white field is not going to wait for us. A white field, we must strike while the iron is hot. We must do the Lord's work while the opportunity and the open door is available. And so Jesus challenged his disciples with this opportunity. And boy, he put a, a note of urgency in it. We can't wait until everything is, is, is worked out for us. We've got to do it when we've got to do it now. Turn over to John chapter 5 there in your Bible, just another page or so. And I want to show you this principle that God is always working. He's working right now. He's working right now in our church. He's working right now in your life. The problem is, can we see it? Do we have the vision to lift up our eyes, as Jesus said? That was the term he used, lift up your eyes. He meant, I want you to really look. Look hard at this. John chapter 5 and verse number 17 Jesus answered them and said, My Father worketh hitherto. Now, the word hitherto means up until now. My Father has been working, and I am working. The word work there is in a present continuous tense. In other words, Jesus said God is always working, and he's always working everywhere. The issue is our vision. So there's always that harvest if we have the ability to see it today. I'm trying to learn and to, to look around and to see where God is working and then to join Him in His work. And I want you to learn to get those kinds of fresh eyes to look and to see what God is doing and where He's doing it. Many Christians are 
probably praying and saying, you know, I'd like to do something for you, Lord. They're asking God to work. And we fail to recognize that principle of John 5 and 17, that God is already working. My prayer ought not to be, Lord, I want you to use me. Our prayer ought to be, Lord, help me to be sensitive, to be sensitive to and to recognize the need that I know is all around me right now. You see, there's always an opportunity. We've been here a long time now, 53 years in our community, trying to serve the Lord. And I sometimes th- get a little vibe from people that, well, man, we've, we've talked to everybody in Florence. No, my friend, we haven't talked to everybody in Florence. I promise you that. There are thousands of people in Florence that are lost. There are thousands of people who absolutely uh, make no profession of faith in Jesus Christ at all. There are thousands of people living right here in our community, and they're unconcerned about their soul. How are we going to reach them? What is the opportunity there? Well, we can love them. They're going to go through periods of illness when we can love them. They're going to go through bereavement when they lose a loved one. We can love them. When we see a person that's discouraged and depressed, we we can put our arm around them and lift them up. We can begin to pray for them. I promise you there's opportunity in the needs of people if we're just sensitive to it. And God's Spirit is working. Our job is to get the gospel to them and to get the gospel to them over and over if necessary until they are are receptive to it. And there are thousands of what I've been preaching about. I've preached a message called The Unsaved Christian. And a lot of people in the country are talking about that in spiritual leadership. A lot of pastors are concerned about the, quote, unsaved Christian. Now, those words don't go together. You understand that's an oxymoron. But I'm talking about people who will absolutely profess to be saved, but there's no reality in their profession. And they say, oh, yes, I was saved, and they'll give you some illustration. But when you look at their life, there's not one scintilla of evidence in their life that they've ever had any transformation, that Christ has made any difference in their life. They're religious people, and they're lost. And they profess, but they have no reality. They have, they have no relationship with the Lord that anybody could ever know about. Many of them are really hard to reach they're, because they're blinded by their own good works. If you talk to them much, you'll find out that their, their basis of salvation is, I don't do bad things. I don't know how many people I've talked to and said, are you saved? Are you really saved? Oh, yes, pastor, I don't. And then they give me a list of four or five things they don't do. That is no basis of salvation, my friend. Thousands are lost and, and know it. Thousands of others are the unsaved Christian profile. They profess to be saved, but, boy, there's no evidence that they know anything about the Lord. They're, they're taking from the cause of Christ rather than adding to it. And then there are the thousands more who may be saved, but they live defeated lives. They've bought into the lies of the culture around them. And like Hosea said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And they're really ignorant of biblical teaching and biblical principles. 
And if we can get them under the sound of God's Word, well, there may be life there, and it may come to fruitfulness and fruition in their lives. So my point is, the fields are white. They're white for us right here in Florence, South Carolina. There are tens of thousands of people that need the gospel of Jesus Christ, that need our church. Now, the second thing Paul does here is he says, or he recognizes his adversaries. A proper view of the Lord's work is, number one, we must be alert to opportunity, but number two, we must recognize the adversaries. Boy, Paul could tell us about adversaries. What else could he tell us? Every town he went into, he was attacked by a mob. He was betrayed by his friends. He was beaten, and he was jailed, and he was stoned. In fact, stoned to death, miraculously raised by the God's power, of course. He was shipwrecked for two days, he says. I was hanging on to a piece of timber floating around out in the middle of the ocean, not knowing if I would live or not. He was washed up on the shore. They built a fire, and a cobra came out of the fire and bit him. All the heathen were gathered around, seeing if he was going to die here in a moment, thinking he was going to drop dead, and God miraculously healed him, and he was okay. He went on and preached the gospel to them and healed some people there that were sick. Boy, he could tell us about adversaries and opposition. But he doesn't much in this passage. I want you to see what he did. He acknowledged that he had adversaries, but look how much time he gives to them. One word, many. There are many adversaries. Now, there's other places where he, he describes them in great detail, false teachers and demonic opposition and so on. But right here, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the adversaries. He's spoken a lot more about the open doors full of opportunity for God's people here. And he just says there are many adversaries, and he just goes on. I'll remind you what those adversaries are in many. There are many adversaries. They're the same enemies you and I have this morning. It hasn't changed a bit. First John describes it as the world, the flesh, and the devil. Are they still around today? Huh? Well, I know the devil is because he's been near me. Now, I, the world and, and the flesh, well, I deal with that too, don't we? And the adversaries never change the world. What does the world mean when you read it in the Bible? 95% of the time when you read the word world in the Bible, it's not talking about the earth. It's not talking about the universe. It's not talking about the physical planets and that kind of thing. What is it referring to? It's referring to society. It's referring to the world's systems. It's referring, if you will, to the culture around us. And so those things are still here, culture and society and the world system. And if we look out at it today and we wonder what in the world is happening, it's increasingly wicked. It's increasingly violent. I was thinking this week of how everything now has been sexualized 
in our culture. I mean, everything. You can't buy a can of shaving cream, but what has been sexualized. Set of tires for your automobile, but they got to have a woman in very little clothing on to sell the tires. Everything has been sexualized. I look at our little kids. I want to weep. I want to cry when I, sometimes it just touches my heart to see what's been done to little girls, the way that they dress, the way that they act, the, the acting out what they've seen on the screens and so on. A law enforcement officer this week, this week, told me, he said, Pastor, it gets worse every day for us. He said, there absolutely is no respect left for life, and there's no respect left for the country and for God and for the flag. No respect for life. Two women murdered horribly, violently in our community in the last, what, 60, 90 days, one Friday night out here. And a small town like this, two in that period of time, it's, it's a world that has gone mad. It's a world that has lost all sense of honor and respect and those values that, that we know are God's values. And then we have a government that's turned so far to the left towards socialism and cultural Marxism. I don't know about you, but it makes me angry when every day somebody, if I'm watching television or reading a newspaper or a journal or something, now this constant drumbeat that America's always been a corrupt place, that America has always been an oppressive nation and, and the way we've treated people. And so I just get so sick and tired of it. I'd like for somebody once again to say that America's a great place. I'd like to send some of that crowd packing overseas to some places where I've been. And they'd come home, they'd kiss the ground. America is still the greatest place, other than possibly Israel, that God has ever allowed to exist. And I know we've got a lot of flaws, lots of problems. I'm not defending that. It's like your kids. You love your kids even with their flaws, right? You don't give up on them and throw them away, no. And I just get so weary of of that, and then I see us turning so far to the left today. And what really concerns me is what we're praying about for Mark, that the way the, the government and the public health officials are using the virus to try to control us and take away our freedoms. I understand it's a serious thing. I understand a lot of people have died. I don't want anybody to die. I don't want anybody to get sick. But I don't want us to sacrifice everything in the world we have for an existence that's not worth living. And then I see the hostility to Christianity. That's the world. And then there's the flesh. I won't even talk about the flesh. I'll just read to you what the Bible says about the flesh, okay? Galatians chapter number 5. Turn there with me in your Bible. Let's hear God's Word about the flesh. And boy, it's a pretty extensive description, I'll tell you today. 
Galatians chapter 5, and we look in verse number 19. Galatians 5 and 19. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest. They're demonstrated. They're easily seen. What are they? Here are the works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. What is that? It's a big word. You probably haven't used that one this week. Vile or filthy or unrestrained or uh, wanton. Now, if you'll notice, the first four of those deal with sexual sins, adultery, fornication, uncleanness. That can also be physical uncleanness. So the Bible does make a case for taking a bath. And it puts it right in there with those things, but it's also talking about moral uncleanness, of course. It can be either. And then we continue. What is the works of the flesh? Idolatry, worshiping anything other than God. Witchcraft, hatred. Oh, does America need to hear that? Variance, emulation, which is a person who is, ex- I mean, really jealous to the extent of being heated up about it all the time. Emulation. Wrath. Strife. Sedition. Heresy. Envy. Murder. Drunkenness. Revelings. Revelings. The party life. And such like. Now, all of those things are the product of the flesh. Look at them. Study them for a moment there and hear me. You see, I think a lot, a lot of the time the devil gets blamed for those. We talk about the devil down here at the bar. Well, the devil don't make people go to the bar. The flesh makes people go to the bar. If there were not a devil, people would still be there. That's the flesh. And that list of things there characterizing what the Bible says, the works of the flesh, and they're easily seen, they're manifested, they're demonstrated. And then the third enemy, of course, is Satan, the world, and I've tried to describe it, the flesh, and then there's Satan himself, the devil, the three great enemies that always haunt the Christian, that always plague us, tempt us. Get this about Satan. You know where Satan works? Because I think people, again, think they, the works of the flesh, they blame that on Satan. Let me tell you where Satan works. Satan works in our mind. Satan's target is right between our ears. He, and so over and over, we see him in the Bible. What does he do when he approaches Adam and Eve? He goes for the mind, doubt. What does he do when he approaches Jesus in the great temptation? He goes for the mind. He's not interested in getting anybody drunk. If somebody's drunk, that's the flesh. Satan's target is to get people to think wrong. And so the New Testament always is talking about, let this mind be in you which was in Christ and think on these things. Satan controls us by controlling the thought process that we have. His focus is the mind. So where are you going to find Satan then? You don't look for Satan in the bar or the brothel. You look for Satan in the classroom. 
You look for Satan behind the lecture desk at the university or even in the elementary school. You look for Satan, uh, you look for him in the media because people engage when you have your cell phone on, you're, you're thinking. And that's where he would approach you if he's going to on that particular day. Satan works through entertainment. Boy, what a feel the, the movies and uh, television what an open door it's given to Satan to enter our minds and to, to affect our thinking. Satan works on us wherever people are engaging their minds. Satan even can go to church. Satan can stand in a pulpit. And right now, what an opportunity. All these people and all those watching and... Um, you're giving me your thought process for a few minutes. Boy, how Satan would love to come and take over that, huh? The world, society, culture with its constant evil, controlled today by a very leftist government, our enemy, our enemy, the flesh, everything about us except for the part that Jesus has done in our life. And then there's the devil who is after our minds, if you will. And we've even got another adversary right now I probably ought to talk about. And we've got something called COVID, the Chinese coronavirus. And boy, if you think that hadn't been the enemy of a lot of things, not just the church, business, so many different areas, it's damaged our lives. But I'm primarily interested in the spiritual. Oh, how I wish you'd get hold of this today, Christian. We are not the first Christians who've ever faced a pandemic. We are not the only Christians who've had to go through this, and we are the people who are best equipped to go through it because they didn't have the medical treatments that in the past that we now have. It was the year 166 A.D., and a smallpox epidemic centuries before there was a shot that would take care of smallpox. The smallpox epidemic swept across the Roman Empire, again, the year 166. It killed 30 to 40 percent of the entire population. One of the reasons it did is the cities were death traps. Multi-story frame buildings were the general place that the common people lived. Most of them lived in a one-room apartment, and if you could get this, they cooked on an open fire in a frame multi-story building. Fires were common, would devastate whole blocks, whole cities sometimes. They were death traps. And the filth was indescribable, the stench you could hardly stand in the cities. First of all, because of all the fires, there was always a smoky atmosphere hanging. And then their chamber pots were dumped from the balconies, raw sewage, 
down onto the street below. It was before people used soap. They had to go to a public bath to wash, so you get the idea of why that was an incubator for germs and disease. And early in that plague in 166, the wealthy all fled to their country estates and most of the doctors. There was one group of people who stayed and tried to do something, who saw opportunity in disaster. It was the Christians, the early Christians. Charles Colson describes it in his book, The Faith. And it's such a beautiful story. Why did the Christians stay? They stayed because life was to them sacred. They were fighting against abortion in the Roman Empire. Every life is a sacred thing. Only God should control when life ends. And so they went and tended those sick people. And they picked up the dead bodies in carts every morning. And they would take a cart full of bodies and dig common graves and try to give the people some sort of a decent grave because the pagans wouldn't do it because they were so afraid. And many of the Christians got the smallpox, as you would think. But they didn't run from it. And here's what we find out today from ancient writings. The survival rate of those under the care of those Christians was about two-thirds better than it was in the general population. That because of their love and their care and their administration to these people, then lives were saved. Thousands of lives were saved. Two-thirds better chance of surviving if a loving Christian was treating you and caring for you in that epidemic. And interestingly, the Christian church grew. It grew at one of its very fastest growing times. It grew because these people were risking their lives to show love to other people. And one of them wrote these words, and we need to hear it. Survival is not our goal. Being faithful to Christ is. Survival is not our primary goal. Being faithful to Christ is. Boy, that's a hard saying in a soft world like we live in today, where everything in a secular society says, at any cost, you have to survive. And these people said, no, Survival is not our primary goal. Sure, we want to live. But being faithful to Christ is. So we have with Paul to be alert to opportunity. And we have to recognize the adversaries. And lastly, we have to choose our response. We can choose our response. You see, when there's problems in life and obstacles, difficulties, adversaries. We can either be reactive, we can react against, against the situation, or we can be proactive because God made us with the power of choice. He gave us individual moral freedom, if you will. 
The oldest story in all of human history is the story of Adam and Eve. They were created in the image of God. What does the image of God mean? It certainly doesn't mean that we physically resemble God. Oh, no, that's not what it's talking about. It means that there is a spiritual resemblance to our Creator. That mentally we can reason and we can make choices. There's a mental, that's a, that's a resemblance of God who does that. We have a moral resemblance. We have a conscience. We know what is right and what is wrong. Even as little children, we know right from wrong. God implanted that in us. There's a social resemblance. We need fellowship. God did not make us to live alone. God did not make us loners. God made us to engage with other people. That sharpens us, and it helps them. No, God made us to be social people, and God made us to be spiritual beings. And with our spirit, we can worship Almighty God. And he placed that couple with that image of God stamped upon them. He put them in a perfect environment. He gave them dominion. He gave them authority. He said, I want you to rule over all the creatures and all, over all the plants and uh, over the whole universe. And he did the greatest thing that could ever happen to a human. Almighty God came down in what form? I don't know, but the Bible says he walked with them in the garden every day. Talk about paradise, perfect heredity, perfect environment, and the Creator coming to visit you at your home every day. It didn't last long because they had an adversary, Satan himself, an angelic being who had been right at the throne of God before he fell, and the source now of all evil in the universe. And he tempted them. And how did he tempt them? The mind. Did God really say, and he planted doubt in their minds that day about whether God was good or was he withholding from them because he didn't want them to eat just one fruit of one tree in that entire garden? And they made their choice. They listened to the voice of Satan rather than to the Word of God. And once the choice was made, the circumstances were fixed. When you pick up one end of the stick, you get the other, don't you? And they made their choice, and we're still living with it today. Now, listen to me. The Lord has placed you and me here at this time in history. We have great opportunities. We have great adversaries. Now, what are we going to do about it? We have a choice to make. God knew COVID was coming. God knew that the government of the United States was going to turn towards socialism. He knew all that. Are we going to be like those first century Christians who chose to do God's will regardless, or are we going to be like Contemporary Americans who choose the way of softness in every single decision they make. The easy way out. We're being tested, Christians, by our times. And when the events of life overwhelm us and surpass our capacity to handle them, 
Well, we have two options. We can react in fear. We can be paralyzed and cease to function and serve the Lord, or we can act in faith. I'm not talking about being reckless with your life, but we've got to make the choice. Are we going to wait for four more months for the harvest, or do we decide, you know what? God has a work for us to do, and we've got to do it. Evil, a wise man said, is powerless if the righteous are unafraid. Evil is powerless when the righteous are unafraid. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary statesman, through him started the China Inland Mission, had 2,000 missionaries on the field at one time. And the burdens were so great to raise the money and help with all these 2,000 missionaries spread across all of China and Mongolia. And Hudson Taylor wrote in his journal, when I cannot read, when I'm so burdened I cannot think, when I cannot even pray, I can trust. Boy, isn't that good? When I'm so burdened and pressed down and oppressed with the problems of life, no matter what happens, I can trust God. I'll keep my eye on Him, my faith in Him. So what does our future look like here, the future of the Lord's work at the Florence Baptist Temple? It's up to us, isn't it? To a great extent, it's up to us. Do we see the open doors? Or do we focus on the adversary? Do we walk through those doors? Or do we say, well, four months from now, we'll think about it again. I personally want to find out where God is working, and I want to join him. I want to get in on whatever God's going to be doing. And you know what? I want you to join me because God can use us. He can use you far more than you've ever thought in your life. And our heads are bowed.